4: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your story. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And up next, we have the story of a young woman named Randy Wilson. This is her story. It starts with an eating disorder and goes straight to motherhood. And Chrissy brings us this story, and it begins with Randy Wilson.
1: So I ended up moving to Florida and I lived with this aunt of mine and she lived in a retirement community. So I was down there by myself. I didn't have anyone that I knew and I didn't make friends right off the bat. And that's abnormal for me because I'm just, I'm really bubbly. I'm outspoken. I'm an extrovert. I wasn't doing good in school. My grades started to slip. I was not praying every day like I used to. It kind of just brought me more into a, a depression. So my aunt Alice introduced me to a friend, a family friend of hers who had a son um, who was around my age. So we hit it off right away. And next thing you know, we started dating and he was really into fitness and CrossFit and very kind of obsessive over nutrition and exercise. And I've always been small. I've been petite my entire life. So I wasn't really too concerned with my weight, I guess being around him so much and him talking about it and everything, then I suddenly felt the need to get on that ball too. I started putting more attention and focus on getting fit and starting to go to the gym and paying more attention to nutrition and what I was eating. But I've never done that before. So I didn't really know the healthy way to do that. So I just started going at it with what I assumed was the healthy way. I was like, okay, well, I'll just start going to the gym and eating less about a week into starting that habit i started seeing results in my body and i was like hey i have lost weight and the guy i was with noticed too he would always comment on like look how little you are that all just encouraged it even more we did end up breaking up but at that point a snowball had already started to roll i have kind of a addictive personality what i mean by that is if i did like two hours at the gym one day then the next day I have to do two hours or more. I have to at least match the same amount of time and the same amount of exercise that I did while I was there. So I kind of shut down. Normally I would go to God with stuff like that, but I don't know, for some reason I didn't. And I ended up just kind of putting all my focus into this new hobby that I'd already started, which was going to the gym. And next thing I knew, I was going to the gym four times a week for like, two and a half hours, and then the diet thing started taking a turn for the worse as well. At first, I was just eating healthy, but then this game started coming into my head. I would try to exert as many calories as I was taking in. At this point, I was trying to eat just simply egg whites all the time and vegetables, and I was still going to the gym and working out, and I was starting to look sickly. We ended up coming home for Christmas that December. My body just plummeted, my health at least. My weight dropped to the 70s. My heart was starting to slow down a lot, and like I I had no energy at all. I remember walking up the steps at my grandmother's house, because that's where we went for Christmas, and I felt like my legs were going to give out on every single step that I took. I was cold all the time. I started growing hair all over my arms and my legs, and I was losing hair from my head. I couldn't shiver anymore, and my teeth couldn't chatter, but I was cold all the time.
3: It was then that Randy's parents intervened.
1: So at that point, my mom had no other choice than to put me in inpatient facility at a hospital in Chapel Hill. I was very reluctant about going to Chapel Hill. I knew I was going to put on weight, and the idea of my clothes not fitting me anymore terrified me. So it took a lot. I did pray about that one. My heart had been feeling really weird at that point too because it slowed down so much so I thought maybe this, maybe this isn't a bad idea because I don't want to die. So I ended up agreeing to go to Chapel Hill and I gained enough weight to go to um, step down back into day treatment.
3: Randy eventually left treatment and returned to college. But there she spiraled back into her eating disorder.
1: A friend of mine came up and she noticed my unhealthy habits starting to pick back up. And she actually called my mom and told her to come and get me that I wasn't doing well and that I was sick again. My mom and dad came up and surprised me and told me I was moving out and that I had to go back to day treatment. I didn't have to go to in treatment this time, but I did go to a residential treatment center in Durham. And that's when I would say my recovery finally really began. So we have a therapist in residential treatment that pretty much grants you your rights. I asked my therapist if I could attend a Bible study because I told her that, you know, my faith has always been really important to me and I think it might help me. She said, okay, sure, but we have to make sure we have enough people to take you to a Bible study. Tuesday night came around. So one of the RPAs came up and said, okay, we need so-and-so-and-so-and-so and Randy to line up to head out. And I was like, is there a Bible study on Tuesday? Then she said it was for an AA meeting. And then they told me that my therapist had considered it close enough to a Bible study because it's based off of biblical principles. So then I started going to AA meetings every Tuesday. Thursdays were NA meetings, which is Narcotics Anonymous. And I jumped on the bandwagon for that one too. <laughs> At first I thought it was really funny and I just wanted to use it as my excuse to get out of the house. but. Honestly, I started listening to all the stories that people would share, and they started hitting me in a deep way.
4: And you're listening to Randy Wilson and her journey from an eating disorder and ultimately to motherhood. And my goodness, there's a lot to unpack there, but it can happen to anybody. And this is the kind of thing that's affecting so many young and older women and now increasingly men. And when we come back, we're going to continue this story, the story of Randy Wilson. And by the way, if you have stories like it, uh, of overcoming in the end, as we do a lot of overcoming stories, send them again to ouramericanstories.com. Randy Wilson's story, A Journey of Overcoming an Eating Disorder. More of this story here on Our American Stories. And we return to Our American Stories and to Randy Wilson's story. She'd been battling an eating disorder and soon found herself attending AA and NA meetings. At first, it was a way to get out of the house. But then the story she heard at these meetings inspired her to begin her own recovery.
1: People share stories about how they lost their family, how their kids don't talk to them. And I thought, you know, I'm so selfish because... All these people are trying really hard to get back on their feet, and they've experienced such traumatic things in life. If they can do this, and they can start really trying to step up their game and get themselves better, then I I need to start doing the same thing, because I'm just going to end up going to AA and NA meetings for my entire life and living in a treatment center.
3: The final piece to Randy's recovery came a few months later.
1: It was around Thanksgiving. We went to this church service and there's these two little girls. They're wearing like these Christmas dresses. They had long curly hair. And I just imagined like, I wanna be a mom. I wanted to make it to being a mom and seeing my little girls grow up and, and raising kids and having a husband and having a career and to be proud of. And I realized in that moment, if I keep doing this, I'm never going to have that. I can keep getting myself better and then getting sick again forever until my body just finally gives out. I think that was the final push to really start trying to get better. After
3: her realization, Randy worked hard to recover and managed to leave treatment within a few months. Once she recovered, Randy decided to finish college online.
1: I was much happier with that. I moved back home with my family in Charlotte. And then I met the man who is now my husband. When I first met Ben, I again kind of started to get that feeling, the need to impress. I started kind of dieting again and paying a lot of close attention to what I was eating. And I did start exercising a lot again because I just wanted to be thin and beautiful. Kind of started to do a little bit of a spiral he noticed what was going on. He knew my history. I had already shared with him the whole story of what had happened. As soon as he started noticing that it was happening again, he gave me basically a set of rules. He said, okay, look, if you get in the 80s, I I will personally put you into treatment. He gave me a lot more freedom though than I had ever received with it. And if he came in on me doing some sort of exercise, I immediately felt this sense of shame and guilt and embarrassment that I'm supposed to be better and I'm doing this. And I was hiding. We had to sit down and talk about it. And I was like, you know what? Okay, let's let's put it. Let's put it to this. I'm either I'm gonna set up what workout I'm doing every day, and I only can do that workout, and let's not go out of it. And I kind of put Ben to hold me accountable. So I gained my weight back, got to a healthy weight, then Ben and I got married. It was the happiest time in my life.
3: But there was one problem. Randy couldn't get pregnant.
1: I lost my menstrual cycle in 2012, when I first started losing weight. So we reached the year 2020, and I still hadn't had a period. So now it's been eight years. And I remember my gynecologist telling me over the phone, because we couldn't meet in person anymore. So he said, uh, you know, Randy, I hate to say it, but if it's been eight years, I really, I don't don't think it's coming back. We're gonna have to figure out another way to get you pregnant. I was devastated and I just cried and cried, because at this point I'd been at a healthy weight for at least, two, three years, and I, I didn't understand why it hadn't come back. So we started seeing a, um, an endocrinologist who basically told me he thought that I could get my period back still. He, he believed that I could, uh, but to lay off of, basically to do no exercise, which for me was a huge challenge because, yes, I had overcome the obsession of exercise and the addiction to it, but that was only because I had my little hour. I relied on that hour to not go into a obsessive snowball effect and overdoing it. But I did quit, um, I did quit exercising. I was, just started walking, I started going on walks, just praying to God, please don't let this be all in vain. That took every bit of, I mean, it wasn't me, it was God. God had to give him this strength. In the middle of the George Floyd riots and the protests, Ben had been sent out to do CEU. He goes out and basically just has to stand out there and make sure that nothing goes too crazy in the city. He he would come home around three or four in the morning. I was stressed out to the absolute max. I was so upset over everything that was going on between COVID and worrying about Ben. And randomly I started my period back (laughs) on like the second night. It was a complete miracle. and. I called my gynecologist, and and he was shocked, and I also called the endocrinologist. Um, And so at that point, we were like, okay, well, let's start trying for babies. And I'd gone to see the endocrinologist several times. I had three periods. He said that my follicles were not growing in the female body, or the follicles hold the egg, and they have to grow to a certain size in order for the egg to be able to be fertilized. And so he was basically saying that your follicles aren't growing. And he said he didn't know if it was, they were ever gonna grow. So I was like, that's unfortunate because fertility drugs are not covered by insurance. And we were trying to figure out that financially and how that was gonna work. We had just gotten enough money to do one of the fertility drugs. And I called them too late, apparently, because you're supposed to start taking it at the beginning of your cycle. And so they said, okay, just wait and just call us back at your next one. I started not feeling well and having headaches and everything, and lo and behold, I was pregnant. That was the greatest miracle I have ever received in my life. It is such a blessing that I was given this opportunity to have a baby. Once you've already made that choice, like to deprive your body of nutrition for so long, it's so hard for your body to be forgiving. One of the other specialists we saw said, that it just wasn't gonna happen because the body is unforgiving when it comes to malnutrition. After I met my husband and I told him the whole story of what had happened, he said to me that he looked at my story as a gift. And it gave me even more motivation to overcome any other battles that I may face so that I could use this, this gift that God had given me to bring honor and glory to Him. And by doing so, helping to bring others that were suffering, others that have struggled, and bring them to His love so they can experience the life that I'm now beginning to step foot into. Noah is gonna be here in about a month. And honestly, my number one priority is to be the best mom that I can be to her. I I want to love her unconditionally as the Lord has loved me unconditionally and how he has shown that to me. I do plan to to share my story with her eventually and hopefully prevent her from ever going through or experiencing anything like that. I know that Noah will certainly experience, you know, her own struggles throughout life, but I want to be I want to be there for her and I feel like God created strength in me through my experiences so that I can be here, be there for her.
3: Randy hopes to write a book about her struggles, drawing from a diary she kept while in treatment. This is one entry she wanted to share.
1: This excerpt is from the last journal entry that I wrote while I was at inpatient care in the hospital at Chapel Hill. I wrote this on March 5th of 2013. Everyone has their own story, their own battles they face. My survival thus far, provides hope and assurance in overcoming the inevitable challenges that lie ahead. The people we meet, the things we see, the troubles we encounter, all play significant roles in molding thoughts, opinions, and beliefs. It is our job to graciously welcome them as gifts. We never stop learning.
4: And a special thanks to Chrissy for producing that story, and thanks to Randy Wilson For sharing her story with us and it's important for these stories to be shared and we love doing these kind of things because in the end it can ease someone else's pain and also provide a pathway to hope for them as well if they can do this she said of the people at AA and NA overcome their obstacles in life and their obsessions and addictions I need to do the same thing and my goodness the story of how she lost her menstrual cycle and then got it back and then became a mother Well, it's just beautiful. And she's so right. The body is unforgiving when it comes to malnutrition. Malnutrition can cause all kinds of long-term damage. The story of Randy Wilson's Overcoming, here on Our American Stories.
0: L-A-S-I-K
4: And we return to Our American Stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything on this show. And up next, a story suggested to us by a listener. In 2009, Tom Morton decided to join the Marine Corps. But it wasn't a cakewalk to get onto the yellow footprints at Paris Island. Here's Tom with his story of joining the Marines.
7: So I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, kind of a middle-class upbringing like in the suburbs and stuff overall fairly normal childhood my parents split up and got a divorce when i was 13. it was hard initially but eventually it was something that i came to really respect and treasure because i I learned a ton from my stepdad and like my father is a more he's always been a businessman you know like he kind of followed the the smarter path the more stable path and that was kind of what his father pushed on him and um, my stepdad didn't really have a lot of family by the time he was an adult so he ended up getting drafted into Vietnam and kind of was forced into service but the way that he handled it and the way that he looked at it it always kind of made it seem not necessarily something glorious but something honorable way that my stepfather Gary is about handling trauma and stuff like he he looks at everything as kind of like well that was terrible but I learned this from it and I'm moving forward and I think that was kind of what made me realize that like even if the military was going to give me things that were horrible to experience like it was something that I could learn from and grow from if I took the right path with it and You know, I think even as a little kid, I was always fascinated by the military. But, you know, after I, I think after I got to know my stepfather and kind of had somebody that was honest and open with me about, you know, the bad times, not just what you see in war movies and stuff, it made me respect it more, even knowing that it wasn't as, as positive as it was portrayed. So that was, you know, my stepdad's always been a great very positive influence on me, and, you know, my dad has too, we just, we've always kind of, not always, but over the military when I wanted to join, we, uh, we butted heads quite a bit. If I was going to join the military, he wanted me to at least go through college and go in as a commissioned officer, and, you know, therefore at least have, in their minds, some kind of a better chance at survival because you're better trained, higher up the food chain, however, you know, people look at it. But, um, you know, that just wasn't really my, my mentality. I always, I kind of looked at it as like the guys who would climb the ladder from the bottom and make it to a point of respect. I wanted to enlist and work my way up. I remember when I, a big shift in things for me of which, which branch I wanted to approach was when I went to an army recruiting station, like, you know, went out of my way, they hadn't talked to me or anything, and just went and found one. And I walked in and I was this really, really overweight army recruiter, just like the the most like inner service kind of uh, trash talk poster guy. And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, so I'm really interested in enlisting, but um, I really want to go to like the Rangers or special forces. What can you tell me about that? Like, what are the options? How does that work? And this dude kinda like rolls his eyes and scratches his head for a second. He's like, ah, you're gonna wanna talk to Mike about that. Um, he's not here today. I think he's supposed to be here Thursday. And I just thought that was the most unprofessional like ridiculous answer I could possibly get. So I walked out really disappointed. Just kind of thinking like, well, maybe the military isn't quite what I thought it was, maybe it's not what I'm looking for. And then a week or two later, I got a call from a a Marine recruiter. Anyway, he started chatting me up and he was like, if you thought about joining the military. And I told him, yeah, you know, I'm I'm really interested in joining the Army Rangers. You know, I wanna go the hardest I can go. And he's like, well, has anyone ever told you that basic Marine Corps infantry school is longer with longer hikes and harder training than Army Ranger School. I was like, well, no, no one has ever told me that. That's, you have my attention now. And so that was kind of the, the ceiling point of the Marine Corps for me is, you know, I, I wanted to go, you know, start out at the hardest level of infantry I could find. And then from there, I had hopes of going to like recon or snipers or something along those lines almost talked my mom into signing off on letting me enlist early basically like as soon as high school was done even though I hadn't turned 18 yet I would go straight to boot camp but uh you know my dad was very hesitant and didn't want to sign that over and basically said like you know when you're an adult you can make that decision for yourself but I really want you to to take some time get an education and think about this before you do it and I kind of relented and agreed to go to college and at least just see how that went and you know, see if something in school grabbed me that made me want to go and do that professionally more than I wanted to join the Marines. So I went to University of Tampa for my first semester and a half, and uh, yeah, that level of freedom was not something that 18-year-old me was quite ready to handle. I uh, I got kicked out of school, so. <laughs> That was the point where I kind of tried to tell my parents, like, hey, look, see, I tried school, I'm obviously an idiot, I it didn't work out, like, time for me to go join the Marines. And I remember in that summer after that spring semester when I got kicked out, my sister and I were talking about it and she was really upset, you know, she was just worried about my well-being, but she, Expressed her worries enough to me to where I kind of Relented and again agreed like all right. I will try school again. I know I kind of Screwed around and partied last time around so I wasn't really giving school a hard try. So I'll go back So I went to Middle Tennessee State But uh, I still had this kind of back-of-my-mind urge that I, I wasn't I needed to do something else, too. So I went and talked to my, uh, my advisor and kind of explained, look, I, I kind of feel an, an internal obligation to serve four years in the Marines at least. So she said, like, if you're going to drop out to join at some point, now's kind of the time because you're not so far in that you, you know will lose everything. So that was when I kind of decided, like, all right, well, it's, uh, it's now or never. So in October of 2008, I um, signed my contract and swore in in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, like something that was always really attractive to me about the military was an idea of like order and consistency and everything and doing something that I could be really proud of telling people that I did. So I, I was really excited about it, but I was also very afraid of telling my family and when I did, it didn't go over all that well. Everyone started trying to find loopholes. Like, you know, you, until you finish boot camp, you haven't actually, you're not actually obligated to do anything or whatever. And you know, I had already made up my mind and, on top of that, given my word. Like, you know, the, the way that I look at a contract is you know, once you give your word that you're going to do something, whether it's signed or not or just a handshake, you do it and you follow through and finish it out. So, from that point on, there was no going back. I also really didn't know what was coming.
4: <laughs> and you're listening to Tom Morton tell the story of how he ended up becoming a U.S. Marine. And my goodness, I wanted to enlist and work my way up, he told his dad. His dad, of course, wanted his son to go to college. And if he was going to go into the military, come in with some protection, because maybe those officers won't get hurt in war. By the way, those officers do get hurt in war. But, well, as often is the case in many of our stories, you can love your dad, but disagree. And when we come back, more of Tom Morton's story here on Our American Stories. And we return to Our American Stories and the story of Tom Morton joining the Marine Corps. When we last left off, Tom, after finding out college wasn't for him twice, had finally decided to join the Marines despite his parents' reservations. Let's continue with his story.
7: It's so funny looking back on just how much I was... I I don't know just how excited I was about the the idealistic kind of thing, you know watching the The Marine Corps commercials where the dude in dress blues is slaying a dragon with the the saber and stuff You know it all looks so it all looks so crisp and beautiful and perfect and like Man, I want to be like that Yeah, then I kind of found out the hard way that it's nothing like that when you're actually in it first got there there's the iconic scene of the the drill instructor getting on the bus and screaming at everyone like you know telling you get off my bus like right now and you have to get on the yellow footprints and those yellow footprints are a big source of lore in the marine corps you know like they're just kind of referred to and everyone knows exactly what you mean like what would you do to go back and not step on the yellow footprints like when you're 10 miles into a horrible hike in the rain or something you know It's always a point of reference of kind of like the the matrix thing of red pill or blue pill like what would you do to go back and not stand on the yellow footprints just stay on the bus but uh, you know once you get there it's complete chaos for the first week it's all just sleep deprivation and just making you feel like you do not know what to do because you don't you're just thrown into the most extreme version of a very very regimented lifestyle without being told how that regiment goes so you learn through messing things up and then getting it's called uh IT'd, individual training basically when a drill instructor says you there come over here and you go to the quarter deck which is the little open area at the front of your squad bay and then you'll get pushed through a series of push-ups jumping jacks crunches whatever basically just any exercise until you start to fatigue and then they'll push you a little longer and then you finally think it's done when they tell you to stand up and then they'll tell you to do something else and it's all about just pushing you past your comfort zone and uh then there's also the pit which is every uh series of buildings for each company has uh a pit and it's a gigantic probably i don't know about the size of a tennis court area of uh sand that surrounded by gigantic logs and basically you go and do a bunch of calisthenics in the sand so you get super sweaty and the sand sticks to you and gets all down your pants and into crevices and places it shouldn't be but if it's 6 a.m. and you've just been doused in sand well guess what you got sand in every orifice for the rest of the day no matter how much more running you do or how many more calisthenics you have to do It's all going to be done with sand rubbing in, in your undies. So really, it's all about trying to remove your identity as a person, as an individual, so that they can rebuild your identity as a part of a larger group or an organization, you know, as a team. So when you first get there, you don't have even name tapes. You can't say the word I, me, you, my, any of that. It's this recruit or... Like, recruit Morton, request permission to speak to drill instructor so-and-so. And if permission is not granted, then recruit Morton does not get to speak. And, you know, you start learning how to tell time based on how hungry you are because you can't have a watch. You're not allowed to know things like that. But you start figuring out from your schedule, like, okay, well, my stomach's growling pretty hard, so we got to be within about an hour of lunch. It's incredible how much you, you can conform to... Such a harsh environment, but that's what it's designed to make you do. But I also completely recognized that it was all a mind game. Like everything that the drill instructors were doing were intended to break us in some way. So I never really broke. Because I feel like I was a little more capable of keeping my calm than some, like I, and just because I was a little older, which doesn't sound like that much to be 20 going in like enlisting being that much older than anyone but most people who enlist are 18 so because of that I was a squad leader for all of boot camp which doesn't really mean much it just means that uh, you stand at the front of the line and anytime someone in your squad makes a mistake you you get to pay with them I would say a big moment for me in recruit training was uh so the tail end of recruit training, the final test is what's called the crucible. It's a uh, three-day non-stop field exercise where, basically, all day you're either hiking or going through some kind of a uh, obstacle course or doing like team, like team-building exercise kind of things where, like, you. You have to climb this obstacle, but you can only do so if you, like, make a human pyramid to be able to step on each other and then pull each other back up or whatever. Like, stuff like that. But it's non-stop. And you have, like, night hikes and everything. And so, like, really, you're, you're only supposed to get about three hours of sleep per night. And you're on your feet moving at all times the rest of the time. And... Our crucible got a little special sauce because it had been raining for three straight days before our crucible started and continued raining for the entirety of it. I don't know how much you know about uh, Paris Island, South Carolina, but it's a very swampy environment. So when it rains hard for a long time, the rain doesn't go anywhere. It just keeps getting deeper. So by the time we got to all these obstacle courses, most of them were at least knee deep in water but drill instructors being drill instructors, that just means, all right, they're gonna hate life more. They're gonna earn it, all right. So we spent three days just staying soggy to the point where your feet have been, the skin on your feet is so soft from nothing but wet boots that, you know, your skin is tearing off inside your boot. A lot of us were bleeding through our boots, like you could see it coming through by the end. I just remember that final hike, you hike back to the main parade deck where you actually do your your drill competitions and graduation and everything, and you get in formation, and you're right there in front of the replica statue of the Statue of Iwo Jima, and it's right at sunrise, and uh, your drill instructors go through and present each one of you with your first Eagle Globe and anchor, which is the Marine Corps emblem, because up until that point, you haven't earned it. You don't deserve to wear it. And so that moment is like a really big shift for you. Like it's, you're no longer a recruit. You are a Marine now. Like you are property of the U.S. government and part of the oldest and the fiercest fighting force America has to offer and one of the fiercest in the world. And the drill instructors get to choose who they give, who each of them gives Eagle Globe and Anchor. I was very... Proud that my senior drill instructor chose to present me with mine because he was he was an incredibly impressive Marine. He was silent drill team before 9-11 happened, and then as soon as it did, he was on in one of the first units in Afghanistan and then went to Iraq for the Battle of Fallujah. Just just a living legend of war stories. And to have someone like that choose to whether it was because he saw something in me or, I don't know, maybe just liked me better or whatever. For whatever reason, having him choose me and hand me the the EGA was very meaningful on its own, but it was also the first time that I could speak to him without having to request permission and refer to myself and him in the third person. So, you know, he asked me, like, if I had anything to say, and I remember just choking up and barely holding it together and saying... I never thought that a little piece of metal would ever mean so much to me as this does and he looked me in the eye and he said it's not just a piece of metal it's a way of life and I think that was when it kind of set in that you know (laughs) has me choking up a little bit now even oh what was that 2009 so 12 years later but uh you know that was kind of what really reinforced the concept that the Marine Corps isn't just a job or you don't just serve a little time in the Marine Corps and then get out. It's not like the Army or the the Coast Guard or the Navy. It's, It's a different mindset. It's a warrior ethos that once you've... If you truly, like, adopt that mindset, you will never be the same. You will always be something different. And even though, you know, all that kind of settled in on me later over over time, it was still an extremely impactful moment. And you know, just getting to, to shake that man's hand after he had made my life hell for so long and knowing that it was over, it was it was a very uh, very liberating and exciting and inspiring moment.
4: And a special thanks to Monty Montgomery for the production on the piece. And a special thanks to Tom Morton for talking about his journey to becoming a U.S. Marine. And as the saying goes, once a Marine, always a Marine. It's not just a piece of metal, he said. It is a way of life. And indeed it is. The story of Tom Morton, his Marine story. And he speaks for so many here on Our American Stories.
6: Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
4: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth no matter who you are.